The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Yeah, I want to I want to paint two scenes in your mind this morning. Two scenes. Um, scene one: There's a little boy, five years old, playing soccer in in early November near Holmes Lake. Right? Uh, he's joyful. He's childlike. He's just having fun. There's been some cold days already in November, and so there's a, a thin layer of ice over Holmes Lake. Not not more though than an inch thick, let's say. And his ball accidentally, as he's playing soccer, he gets kicked out onto the lake. He runs out there playfully after it. About 30 feet from the shore, he reaches the ball, turns around. He's just having fun. Starts kicking it back, right? Meanwhile, his parents are standing on the shore, absolutely terrified, right? But until they start shouting, this little boy doesn't have a care in the world. He feels safe, he feels secure, it really hasn't crossed his mind to think otherwise. But his parents, and you and I know, (laughs) what he has is a false sense of security. His security is not certain, it is extremely uncertain. I don't know how much weight a one inch ice can hold, I just made that up, but let's just say, it's not not looking great, is it? He, he, He may look confident, this little boy, he may look confident for the moment, but it's a false confidence, it's not founded on anything real, quite the opposite. Scene two, there's a young man, 20 years old. Let's just call him Todd, all right? And uh, some of Todd's college friends talk him into going to Six Flags in Denver to go ride the roller coasters, right? Now, they're there. Todd doesn't like roller coasters, uh, but they're there, and they're going to ride these roller coasters, and Todd's terrified, absolutely terrified. And they get on there, and they ride the, the one, of course, that takes the picture. You know about the pictures, right? And, and in the picture, there's, there's Todd, and, and he is hanging on to that roller coaster arm thing for dear life. I'm talking back spasmy fear going through his body, like if if I let go, I will surely die terrified going on here, right? And um, here's the thing. Uh, you know it, and, and I do in my rational moments too. There's, there's, really, there's really nothing to be that terrified for, is there? I mean, besides the fact that once every three years somebody flies off and dies, don't push the illustration too far. That will certainly break, right? That will certainly break. But, but listen, we, you know that that young man was completely safe even though he didn't feel like it. He was secure, he had a confident security, even though he didn't have a sense of it. Now, which one of the characters in which one of the scenes are you more like? You might think neither, but think about it with respect to your eternal security with God. Your confident security with God. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul wants us to have a confident security. He wants us to have the life-changing assurance of knowing that we belong securely to Jesus. And last week we looked at verse 28. We looked at verse 28 and how we know that for those who love God, those who have been called according to his purpose, God works all things together for good. He's got this. He's got you. He's got everything under control. He's at the helm, remember? He's working all things together for good for Christians, all things. And you'll remember we said we have to be careful to ensure that we're defining good 
The same way that the Apostle Paul is defining good in this passage. So we peeked ahead at verse 29 and we saw that the good that Paul has in mind, the good that God is working all things together for is our being conformed into the image of Jesus. And anything that conforms us into the image of Jesus is good. It's good. And this connects with God's purpose back in verse 28. The purpose that you've been called according to if you're a Christian. And our verses this morning, verses 29 and 30, tell us what this purpose is really all about. And understanding this purpose, knowing it, not just in between your ears, but in between your armpits, knowing it gives us a confident security. Here's the big idea today. This is what I want you to leave here with, and it's this, that our confident security, okay, knowing with certainty that we belong to God, our confident security comes from being caught up in God's eternal plan. Our confident security comes from being caught up in God's eternal plan. Now, there really isn't an, an outline for this morning. The passage is pretty straightforward, but if you're someone who really likes outlines and needs to like jot down an outline, I'm that type of person, actually. Um, first, we're going to look at the verbs in these two verses, these two sentences. Secondly, we're going to look at the object of these two sentences. And then last, we're going to look at the subject. And you're like, oh my goodness, is this English class a little bit, right? A little, little bit of grammar lesson um, th- this morning. But let's, let's talk about the verbs first. There's actually five of them in this passage, and they are completely fantastic. Paul says in verse 29, in explaining verse 28, remind you, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Those are our verbs. Let's take them one at a time. When Paul says that God foreknew those who he called and justified and all the rest, what does he mean? Well, let's start with what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that God looked down the corridor of time. Or, or even looked from, from his position like outside of time in some way and saw who would believe and who wouldn't believe and predestined then those who believed, those who would believe. Out of a sincere effort to make sense of, can we just admit some pretty complicated theology here? That's what some Christians say that this means. That God looked down the corridor of time, saw who would believe, and then predestined them based on the fact that they would one day believe. But that view, what it does is reduce foreknowledge down to foresight. And it cannot mean foresight for two reasons. One, if that's what Paul meant, that foreknowledge essentially means foresight, we'd have to admit that God here, he foresaw everyone, didn't he? In order to see those who would believe, he would have to see those who didn't believe. He's watching them all to see, right? And so if foreknowledge simply means foresight, if we play that out with the rest of the text, we'd actually end up with universalism. And everyone across all time being saved because it says that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and called and justified and glorified. See, it doesn't say that for those whom he foreknew would actually turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, he predestined. 
The Word of God simply says, those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Which leads to the second reason it cannot mean this, which is that the focus in this passage is is not actually on what any of us do. Nowhere in this text is there any focus at all on what you or I do, whether we believe or not, or reject Him or not, or trust and follow Him or, or not. That's not the point. That's not the focus. Well, the focus is squarely on what God does. The focus is on the truth that God foreknew. What then does it mean that God foreknew? Well, this is where a little grammatical and theological reflection is helpful. Grammatically, to foreknow, is it just means to know beforehand, right? To foreknow merely adds the notion of beforehand to the word know. And then theologically, we have to admit that to know is a loaded statement in the Bible. It means way more in the Bible than intellectual knowledge, intellectual cognition. It denotes a personal relationship of, of intimacy, care, and affection. We read, for example, in Genesis 4, that Adam knew Eve, and then she conceived and bore Cain. And so I hope you realize that Cain didn't just come about because Adam looked at Eve and said, hey, I know you. We know where babies come from. And the Bible says baby Cain came from Adam knowing Eve. <laughs> More than that, though, throughout the Old Testament, we read about God knowing his people. He knows his people. And, and to know, in this case, means essentially that God has, has set his covenant love upon them. In Genesis 18, we read, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm, what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham should surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him. And the ESV footnotes that word chosen telling us that it can also be translated as known. I have known him. It's actually how the New King James translates it. I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so the idea of being God's chosen one and being known are related. In Amos chapter 3 verse 2, when, when God is addressing his covenant people, he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know everyone else on earth, that he doesn't know about them, doesn't know them in any sort of way. Of course he does, but the, the knowing here is special, isn't it? Or in the New Testament, later in Romans actually, in Romans 11 verse 2, Paul's talking about the remnant of Israel, and he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. If we look closely here at Romans 11, verse 2, the verb foreknew here functions as an antonym to rejected. And the whole point that Paul's making in Romans 11 is that God has not rejected his people on whom he has set his covenant love. Or think about Jesus' famous words in Matthew 7. Where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now Jesus here is not saying there's going to be people on the last day who didn't enter the kingdom of heaven because he never met them. That they never made their acquaintance with him, right? No, when he says, 
I never knew you. He means you, you never belonged to me. You never become my people. There's not been a saving relationship, a, a relationship of intimacy and care and affection. The late theologian John Murray sums all this up in what I'm trying to say when he writes this, that many times in Scripture, no has a pregnant meaning which goes beyond that of mere cognition. It is used in a sense practically synonymous with love, to set regard upon, to know with particular interest, delight, affection, and action. Whom he foreknew is virtually equivalent to whom he foreloved. It is a sovereign distinguishing love. This fits as well with what we read Moses saying to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7. Where he says, he tells the Israelites, it's not because you were more in number. He says, it's not because you were special, right? It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you as keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, God's foreknowledge then is God's sovereign, distinguishing love. That doesn't get rid of all problems, does it? But it helps us to understand what Paul's talking about here when he says that God foreknew some people. What this means is if you belong to God, something you should understand is that long before you knew and cared about Him, He knew and cared about you. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that this foreknowledge of God, this foreloving and choosing goes all the way back before time existed. We saw this in the call to worship today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so God's foreknowing is him bestowing upon us his sovereign, distinguishing love. I realize that was deep, right? I mean, that's complex. We're... We're doing light work with heavy topic here this morning. But then Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That's our second verb. God predestined. That word literally means to predetermine, to decide beforehand. It means to to make a plan ahead of time and to determine a horizon and and set out after it. That's what it means to predetermine something, right? Right? To predestine something. Which means when we hear the word predestined, what we should immediately be asking ourselves is predestined for what? Well, Paul tells us. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the goal, remember? This is the good from Romans 8, 28, that God's working all things together for those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved, he also predestined, he determined ahead of time to be conformed into the image of his son, to be made like Jesus. What's in view here is the believer's conformity to Christ that has begun now as those who have been saved and are being sanctified 
but also includes that which will one day fully be realized when we are glorified with Christ. We'll talk about glorification here in a minute, but this is what believers have been predestined for. This is what you've been predestined to, to be conformed into the image of the Son. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, what God's word says right here is that you are one who has been predestined. And I know that can draw up all kinds of questions. It did for the original readers of Paul's letter as well, which is why we'll return to this theme again in Romans 9. But for now, ponder the thought. Just marvel at the thought, even if you can't quite get your head around it, which none of us can, right? But would you marvel at the thought that you have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus? See, when you became a Christian, clearly a decision was involved, right? That's how I experienced it. I'm pretty sure that's how you experienced it in some way too, especially if like me, you came to faith later in life and can remember a time where you clearly did not trust and follow after Jesus. What the biblical truth, the biblical doctrine of predestination says though is, yes, you made a decision, but it was actually God's decision long before it was yours. This doesn't deny that you've made a choice. It doesn't deny that you've made it freely. But instead that you did so only because he first decided for you. Now, listen. The intent of this truth is to bolster your confident security. Not undermine it. Paul doesn't tell the Romans about predestination so that they'll question their salvation. That's the perfect opposite of what he's up to in Romans 8. This truth is not intended to be the parental screams at five-year-old you out on the ice that suddenly causes you to freak out and question everything you've been standing on. It's intended instead to take you into the engineering room of that roller coaster. <laughs> to show you the plans, all the, the details, giving you a glimpse at its stability, its security. It's like seeing the test data of the, of the roller coaster, and it's intended for you to conclude, boy, I have a confident security. And I'll add that that's true unless, unless you find yourself having no interest in what Paul says you've been predestined for. If you have no interest in being conformed into the image of the Son, if that's not the desire of your heart, can we just admit that you can be in this room right now and be someone who has no interest in being conformed into the image of the Son? You're here, you're at church, but that's not why you're here. You're here for some other reason. If you have no interest and desire for reading God's word and submitting your life to it and obeying it and seeing more and more of your life brought into conformity with Jesus, or if your holding of this doctrine is, is not producing holiness in you, if it's producing pride in you, or if you somehow convince yourself, I'm in, and now it doesn't matter how I live. 
If any of those things are true, you, my friend, are on thin ice. You are. You've missed it. And any sense of security that you have is not certain. It's extremely uncertain. You may look confident for the moment, but it's a false confidence. It's not founded on anything real. Quite the opposite. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That's the third verb, called. In verse 28, those called are the same who love God. They're the ones called according to his purpose. This calling is effectual, meaning whomever God calls, we always answer. We know this because calling is right smack dab in between predestined and justified. There's no break. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. It doesn't say those who answered the call, he justified. It says those whom God called, he also justified. God's calling is effectual. It accomplishes what God designed it to do. It's his divine summons. It it raises the spiritually dead to life. It's the awakening of the predestined to saving faith in Jesus. And it comes through the hearing of the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read it this way, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this end, he, same word here, called. He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a general gospel call. Everyone who hears the gospel hears the gospel call, and yet we know that not everyone who you share the gospel with, not everyone who hears the gospel on a Sunday morning or some other setting is saved. No, but within the gospel call is this call, the calling of God, the effectual call. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined and called, respond to that call and are justified. Listen, that call might be coming to you today. God may be calling you to himself today. Notice, we haven't said anything about what you've done or what you do here this morning. The effectual call doesn't go, doesn't go to, to those who you know, have figured it out. It doesn't go to, to those who have done some weird calculus and determined if they're predestined or not. That's not what this is about. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the the call goes out to sinful people like you and me. And the way you know you're called, the way you know you're predestined, the way you know you were foreknown is that you respond to the call. You're someone who says, man, I once was blind, but now I see. You're someone who says, I'm completely undeserving, but Jesus died for me. You're someone who loves him now, follows him now, worships him now, longs to see your life brought into conformity with his word now. You have faith in him. It's not perfect, you're not perfect, but you've responded to the call. 
which leads us to the fourth verb, justified, which I hope you realize is not a new term for us in the book of Romans, right? I mean, in some ways, this is what Romans has been all about. Chapter three, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, in chapter 5, verse 9, since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All of which, all these repetitive hammerings at us about justification, all of which ought to lead us to conclude that when we come to verses 29 and 30 in Romans chapter 8, The point is not for us to start it for knowledge and try to work our way forward and figure out if we've been justified or not. Paul's whole point is that you have been justified if you trust in Jesus. There's no condemnation for you now. Remember how he started the chapter? Which means, as believers, we come into the golden chain of these two verses at the justification link and realize, oh boy, if I've been justified, that means I was called. Paul's not trying to get the Roman Christians to figure out if they've been called or not. He's telling them they have been. And if you recall, looking even further back than that, you were predestined. You were foreknown. You were foreloved. It's it's a glimpse backwards at the everlasting love of God from eternity past. See, if you're a Christian and you read this passage and it shakes your faith, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Paul's intention is not to shake your faith. His intention is to strengthen it. He's telling us that our confident security comes from being caught up in God's eternal plan. A plan that includes your justification but spans all the way back to eternity past. If you've been justified, you're someone who has been foreknown, foreknown, foreloved, all the way back in eternity past. That looks in one direction, right? Towards, the, towards eternity in that direction. But as we've been saying for weeks now, Paul also wants us to look the other direction. He wants us to look forward. Because those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's eternity future. You and I as believers will one day be glorified. A simple definition for glorification is we will be like Christ with Christ. It's the finalization of our being conformed into his image from verse 29. It's the completion of our sanctification, which he promises us in Philippians he will see all the way out. It's the good work that he began in us, finally and fully being completed. That's glorification. We're going to live forever with Jesus and even be like Jesus when we see him. We're going to be like him, John says. 
All sin is going to be eradicated. You're never going to have to confess or ask forgiveness or repent ever again. Our bodies are going to be made new and whole. No more doctor's visits. No more tinkering with the meds. And we'll never die. We'll live on and on and on into eternity in the intimacy and care and affection, the steadfast love of God our Father in heaven. And Paul is so certain of this. He puts glorification in what theologians call the prophetic past tense. To be clear, we have not yet been glorified, but we will. That's the point of Romans 8. From justification to glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. No condemnation, no separation. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, if you have been justified, looking all the way back, you were foreknown, you were predestined, you were called, you have been justified, and you will, you will. It's as good as done. You will be glorified. It's as good as done for you. For you. I mean, look at the object of these verbs. It's all the same. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It doesn't say some of those he foreknew, he predestined. No, it's all of those whom he foreknew. Those he foreknew, he also, don't miss the also, he also predestined. Verse 30, and those, which those? Same those, same those. And those whom he predestined, he also called. It doesn't say most, most of them. No, it's all those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, the same those, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. The golden chain of our salvation, as some have called it, spanning from eternity past all the way to eternity future. Which means, listen, there's no dropouts. There's no kickouts. No one falls through the crack, not if you belong to Jesus. He's not going to forget about you. No one's going to snatch you out of his hand. These are unbreakable links. Which means, friends, Christians, you're not on thin ice. And yes, this roller coaster called life gets twisty sometimes with its ups and downs and its upside downs. I know, it gets scary sometimes. And you look like me in that picture going, ah! But it's not going to toss you off. Your confident security comes not from how well you're trusting in him. Not in how well you're holding on. It comes from being caught up in his eternal plan. Which means you can sing with Charles Wesley from his old hymn titled Confident Security. While thou art intimately nigh, who, who shall violate my rest? Sin, earth, and hell I now defy. I lean upon my Savior's breast. 
I rest beneath the almighty shade. My griefs expire. My troubles cease. Thou, Lord, on whom my soul is stayed, will keep me still in perfect peace. Me for thine own thou lovest to take in time and in eternity. Thou never, never will forsake a helpless worm who trusts in thee. That's who we are, church. Helpless worms trusting in Jesus. Our confident security comes from being caught up in his eternal plan, which leads us finally to contemplate the subject of all these verbs, which I hope you've realized already is him. It's him. Did you notice all the he's in this passage? There's a lot of them. He, 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 he. There's nine of them. Nine of them. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what did you do in that passage? Nothing. In other words, God does it all. He is the subject of all of these verbs. Friends, Paul did not write this part of Romans 8 so that they would receive it, the Romans would receive it and sit around and talk about it in the abstract. He didn't write it so that one day Christians would would sit around on couches and, and debate the particularities of Calvinism versus Arminianism. He didn't write it. His intended reaction was not for us to, to hear these difficult theological concepts like foreknowledge and predestination. He did not write it so that we would you know, look down and, and start wondering, man, do I really belong to Jesus or not? The intention was for them to look up and praise God that they do. Do belong to him securely. which actually leads us to a part of the text that we've skipped over until now. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. I think I've bold-faced on those slides everything except for one part of the text so far. It's a part that's typically skipped over when we look at these verses, but we must not certainly skip over it. To skip over it is actually to miss the point of the whole text and possibly the whole chapter of Romans 8. Go back to verse 29. Why? Does Paul say we've been foreknown? Why does Paul say we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son? In order that. Do you see it? In order that what? In order that he, in order that Jesus, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's why. Now, all throughout the Bible, the firstborn is always in a position of preeminence. Go back to the Old Testament. The firstborn always had a special position of of privilege and, and respect and honor was to be shown to him. And what Paul is doing here is saying, God's great plan of salvation is all geared at this ultimate purpose. That Jesus the Son might be the firstborn among many. 
that he might be made to be seen as the preeminent one whom he really is. Surpassing all others, distinguished in the most glorious ways, honor and respect and glory shown in the most glorious way. Revelation records it this way with crowns cast down before the throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's what this is ultimately about. The preeminent one. Jesus. And it's absolutely essential that you look at your salvation from this standpoint. The chief purpose of salvation is to glorify the Son of God. That's why you've been foreknown and predestined and called and justified. It's why even one day you will be glorified. Why? So that you and I and every other believer across all time and all places will gather around Jesus in heaven, the firstborn among many, and praise him. Church, the reason your confident security comes from being caught up in God's eternal plan is because God's eternal plan is to glorify Jesus. And that plan will not fail. It cannot fail. Nothing can, nothing ever will stop the undefeatable plan of God the Father to glorify God the Son. Nothing. This is the guarantee. This is our confident security. This is why all things work together for good for us. They have to. He's conforming us into the image of the Son so that the Son would be glorified. This is why Paul can put your glorification in the prophetic past tense. This is why he can say with such certainty, you will be glorified. It's because Christ will be glorified through you. That's the plan. And our confident security comes from being caught up in God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan to glorify Jesus. You're not on thin ice. You're on rock solid ground and always will be. Even when life feels like the roller coaster, you're safe. You're safe. Let's take that into the Advent season with us this year. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. It should fill us with a humble confidence. Let's pray. Father, it is so incredibly easy for us to put ourselves at the center of your eternal plan. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Forgive us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the reason for it all. Conform us, Spirit of God.
more and more into the image of Jesus all the way to the end. Glorify us, Lord, so that Jesus would be glorified forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.